You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. Today's episode is a very fine example of what we've been seeing again and again and again, that the early struggle to build the State of Israel is so intertwined with events that are occurring throughout the world and how they impact upon the Jews. In January 1933, Hitler and the Nazis came to power, and in other governments in Central and in Eastern Europe, governments passed laws and people took initiatives that made it essential for Jews to leave their homes and take refuge in Palestine. In 1933, 30,000 Jews came to Palestine. In 1934, 42,000. In 1935, 62,000, which was an all-time record under the British mandate. Large numbers came in 1936 as well. But as in the past, the Arab response was predictable violence, which they called the Great Arab Rebellion, or the Revolt. The Arab Revolt in Palestine would start less than 20 years later after British rule, which is better known as the Great Palestinian Revolt. At the end of World War I, the British government ruled over Palestine. July 1st, 1920, a Palestinian civil administration was installed with a dual mandate giving Palestinians local control and the United Kingdom world political control. The British signed two pieces of legislation, the first, the Balfour Declaration, and the second, the Mandate for Palestine. Britain thus had a dual obligation towards Arabs and Jews. While the mandate included the main parts of the Balfour Declaration, such as a proclamation for support for a Jewish national home, under the mandate's terms, Britain had an obligation to conduct its policy in Palestine in accordance with the needs of both Jews and Arabs. New government systems were put in place to help propel each group into becoming one nation under two different but temporary political systems. At any time, the British government could remove or disband these organizations. The Arabs and the few Jews living in the Middle East had very different perspectives on how Palestine should operate. Land was also divided and the Palestinians would receive the eastern bank of the Jordan River. These temporary governmental systems did not keep these two groups together, but slowly drove them apart. Once the British took over Palestine, riots broke out soon after. In 1920, the Mandate of Palestine started a public outcry of freedom between Jews and Arabs. First, the settlements of Matula and Telhai were attacked by Arab marauders. Two months later, rioting began in Jerusalem. Acts of violence and murders took place throughout the country. The British finally reacted by saying they would take a, make a royal commission to examine events. This commission, known as the Peel Commission, came to a startling new revelation. The Peel Commission, formerly known as the Palestine Royal Commission, was a British Royal Commission of Inquiry, headed by Lord Peel, appointed in 1936 to investigate the causes of unrest in mandatory Palestine, which was administered by Britain, following the six-month-long Arab general strike in mandatory Palestine. On 7 July 1937, the Commission published a report that, for the first time, stated that the League of Nations mandate had become unworkable and recommended partition. The British cabinet endorsed the partition plan in principle, but requested more information. Following the publication, in 1938 the Woodhead Commission was appointed to examine it in detail and recommend an actual partition plan. The Arabs opposed the partition plan and condemned it unanimously. 
The Arab High Committee opposed the idea of a Jewish state and called for an independent state of Palestine. We will have opportunities in other episodes to come back to this Peel Commission. It is not possible, the British concluded, to get the Jews and the Arabs to live together under one mandate. Neither will accept the rule of the other, and there will have to be a division. Their conclusion was that 75% of Palestine would go to the Arabs, about 20% to the Jews, and 5%, including areas of Jerusalem and the port of Jaffa, would remain under British control. After agonizing debate, the Jews agreed to a state that would be only 20% of what had been promised to them in the Balfour Declaration. But the Arabs felt that giving the Jews 20% or any single percent was too, too, too much for them, and they rejected it out of hand. The Arabs resumed the revolt, and the British appointed yet another committee. In May of 1939, the British committed the ultimate betrayal of the Balfour Declaration and issued the White Paper. Early on, the British mandate over Palestine had started to run into serious trouble, with a series of Muslim Arab uprisings under the leadership of Hajj Amin al-Husseini. The British had appointed this radical Islamist as Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. His appointment was an act of appeasement, a policy that the British authorities thought would restore calm. A pattern had been set that would haunt the rest of British rule over Palestine. By the mid-1930s, Palestine had become almost ungovernable. By this time, Adolf Hitler was in power and the persecution of Jews in Germany had begun. In order to appease the Mufti and his followers, in case they sided with the Nazis, which they ended up doing anyway, the British government began to introduce measures to seriously restrict Jewish immigration into Palestine. The end result was the infamous MacDonald White Paper of May 1939. This white paper would have disastrous consequences for the Jewish people. It came at a time when Jews in Europe were fleeing from the Nazis and virtually no country would take them. The white paper restricted the number of Jews that would be allowed to settle in Palestine to a total of just 75,000 over the next five years. Moreover, after that five-year period, any further Jewish immigration would only be permitted if the Arabs agreed to it. Clause 14.1 of this white paper also indicated that the Jewish population should not exceed one-third of the total population of Palestine. With a two-thirds Arab majority, many of them hostile to the Jewish presence, the political rights of the Jewish people were completely compromised. Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who was always an advocate of the policy of appeasement, just like in Munich, Chamberlain naively thought that he had acquired, quote, peace in our time, which was not only totally naive, as the Nazis did not stop with the Sudetenland, but went on to take all of Czechoslovakia, and from there, all of Europe. Chamberlain thought that we have to offend someone and the Jews are relatively small next to the Arabs. It is in our interest not to offend the Arabs who control the Middle East, govern the oil pipeline, and there is a significant Muslim population in India 
which was the jewel of the crown of the British Empire. Chamberlain institutes the White Paper, which meant that no more than 75,000 Jews could come to Palestine in the next five years. When 62,000 came just one year before, and that was within one year, and this is at a time when Jews need desperately to escape, greater than any other time in their history. Further Jewish immigration would be dependent upon Arab agreement, which meant to say that there would be no more Jewish immigration. And the White Paper stated that for 10 years, no later than 1949, a state would be established based on who was the majority, which clearly meant the Arabs, that were already over a million compared to some 470,000 Jews. If the number of Jews entering the land of Israel would be constricted, then the Arabs will obviously be the majority, and there will not be a Jewish state. The dream of a national homeland was over as of May 1939. When the Arab revolt began in 1936, Yitzchak Sadeh joined the Haganah. He initiated a policy for defending the settlements by going out to attack the marauding Arab bands rather than remaining behind, behind the barbed wire and perimeters of the settlements to await the raids. In other words, the best defense is a good offense. Haganah field companies, which Yitzhak Sadeh commanded, were formed to implement this strategy. Sadeh was one of also the founders of the Palmach, which we've already explained to be the striking force and the elite units of the Haganah. And he became its first commanding officer in 1941. In 1945, he was promoted to act as chief of the Haganah General Staff, coordinating resistance against the British. During the War of Independence, he took several part, part in several operations, including the Battle for Jerusalem. We will come back to that as well. So as the British were focused on quelling the Arab Revolt, they were ironically training participants what would become a Jewish revolt against the British less than 10 years later. At this point, Jewish youth were at the point of desperation because of the events in Europe. They then went into a frenzy when the Anschluss and German annexation of Austria commenced in March 1938. The spectacle in Vienna of a public orgy of Jew baiting, like making Jews clean the streets down and all for the elderly people, children thrown into the river, and if they tried to escape, bricks were thrown at their heads. What had been thought to be inconceivable in a great modern center of civilization like Vienna was now commonplace throughout Vienna, throughout Austria, throughout anywhere under Nazi dominion. The outside world, while shocked by the Nazi atrocities, did nothing to help the Jewish victims. And this is best portrayed by the Avian Conference in early July, 1938. By the time Franklin D. Roosevelt invited countries from all over the world to help solve the Jewish problem at the Avian Conference, Jewish refugees were a pressing issue for the rest of Europe, the Americas, and British Mandate Palestine. Over the course of the nine-day conference, every single country expressed sympathy for the state of the Jews, but few offered to actually help. Goldemeyer wrote, I wanted to get up and scream at them. Don't you know that these so-called numbers are human beings? People who may spend the rest of their lives in concentration camps or wandering around the world like lepers if you don't let them in? Canada refused to make a commitment, saying famously, none is too many. Chaim Wiseman, who would become the first president of Israel, observed, the world seemed to be divided into two parts. Those where Jews could not live 
and those where they could not enter. In addressing the UN in 1979, the US Vice President Walter Mondale said, if each nation had agreed on that day to take in 17,000 Jews at once, every Jew in the Reich could have been saved. At Evian, they began with high hopes, but they failed the test of civilization. The country that made the largest gesture was the Dominican Republic. Decades later, Mondale told the UN, as the delegates left Evian, Hitler again goaded the other world for oozing sympathy for the poor, tormented people, but remaining hard and obdurate when it comes to helping them. Days later, the final solution to the Jewish problem was conceived, and soon, the night closed in. At a press conference after the gathering, Goldemeyer remarked, There is only one thing I hope to see before I die and that is that my people should not need expressions of sympathy any more. Avion Conference was an important, yet not a very well-known and tragic event. So let's give it some attention. The plight of Western Jewry after the Anschluss in March 1938, when about 200,000 Western Jews came under the Nazi heel, made it to page one of all the newspapers. And there was pressure in Washington to do something on behalf of these Jews now who were under such difficult conditions under Nazi domain. FDR and his cabinet had made a conscious decision that they would not do a thing. Unemployment following the Great Depression was catastrophic, and FDR had pledged to correct the situation. Allowing farmers whose lives were at risk into the country would not alleviate the employment crisis. But still, something had to be done. FDR, the consummate politician, had the perfect solution. Ten days after Hitler marched into Austria, FDR, named after the highway of Manhattan, announced the formation of a conference of 32 countries to deal with the refugee problem. It also had, if I'm not mistaken, 12 NGOs. If in any way this smacked of hope for the Jews of Austria and Germany, this was dashed by the very invitation which stipulated that no country was expected to increase the quotas of their existing legislation. The most pressing problem for facing German and Austrian Jewry was to get out. Their very lives depended upon it. But how in the world could a conference be of any help whatsoever if, from the get-go, it would not remedy the problem that needed to be solved? The answer, that this proposed conference was not intended to do anything but be a PR stunt to get pressure off Washington for being insensitive about humanitarian issue. FDR milked the proposed conference for its every stitch of PR value. He could do nothing and appear like he was about to do something very grandiose. Hitler saw right through all the baloney. At a speech in Konigsberg, he, he commented, quote, I can only hope and expect that the other world that has so much sympathy for these criminals, i.e. the Jews, will at least be generous enough to convert their sympathy into practical aid. We, on our part, ready to put all these criminals at the disposal of these countries, for all I care, even on luxury liners. The United States and the rest of the world was fooled by all of the press. Hitler was not. The president and cabinet were largely motivated and basically only addressed the rest and suffering of just one Jew. And that Jew was Dr. Sigmund Freud. And it was his ill treatment that forced the United States to sponsor what would become the Avian Conference. It is so much easier to focus on one person than on a faceless mass population, which is why six million Jews do not mean as much as the suffering of one Anne Frank. Six million paper clips, or papa clips, are more significant and can conjure, conjure a greater image 
than the idea of six million souls. The background of the Avian Conference was a commitment by all those assembled to do nothing other than issue a condemnation of how Hitler was abusing human rights. Now that would surely make him change his ways. Of course, of course, of course. The German press had a heyday at all the hyperbole of the West who would not let any Jews in. The German press argued that the world was united in its hatred of the Jews, but only the Germans had the gumption to be most honest about it. Just two weeks before the conference convened, it was reported in the press that all Jews are being viciously attacked and the authorities demand immediate evacuation of the Jews, and the Jews would certainly have welcomed to go anywhere. There wasn't a Jewish family that did not have at least two of its members incarcerated, but there was no way out, for no country was issuing visas. Regardless, thousands of Jews waited all night long outside the embassies, waiting in vain to register their names even though there was a curfew. The fundamental question for America on the eve and even after the conference was not could America absorb more unemployed of its already millions, but could America live with its conscience and allow Hitler to get away with the extermination? The answer was a resounding yes without compunction. American and England, who were the major powers of the West, worked feverishly that nothing should be accomplished at the conference. The most eloquent spokesman for Jewry was Dr. Chaim Weizmann, head of the World Zionist Organization, and the British made concerted efforts that he not be allowed to speak with anyone, for the British were doing all that they could to forbid Jewish immigration to Palestine. Exactly what Weizmann wanted to open up was what the British were determined to keep hermetically sealed. The conference was a fiasco. The very first days were devoted to fighting who would chair the conference, France wanted the United States to chair, the United States wanted France to chair, said each could blame the other when the conference turned out to be a failure. Every country had a chance to speak, and each used this opportunity to explain why they would not and could not change their immigration policy and allow Jews in. Australia, which even today is 90% unpopulated, stated, as we have no racial problem, we have no desire to import one. And they said they have no place for Jews, 90% unpopulated. New Zealand said it would, did not have territory suitable for refugees. Canada was only willing to attempt to find refugees a haven in a different country. Many other South and South Amer Central American countries said they could only accept farmers. They did not wish to allow doctors or intellectuals in or lawyers in into a country which would be more intelligent than the locals. Needless to say, the number of Jewish farmers in Austria and Germany in 1938 was the same number of internet technicians. Peru said that they would not accept intellectual class and added accurately, the United States has given us an example by its own restrictions. Argentina said that its population was one-tenth the size of the United States, yet it already accepted the exact same numbers the United States had and therefore would accept no more. Heinrich Rotman was the Swiss delegate. He was an anti-Semite of note, and he was the one who came up with this idea of having a red J stamped on the Jewish passports to make sure that no Jews would go into Switzerland. Switzerland, akin to the border between America and Canada, it's an open border. There was an open border between Austria, Switzerland, and Germany, but the Swiss didn't want to want, did not want to allow Jews in, so they came up with this idea of having a J stamped on a passport so they know, who would know was Jewish to make sure they would not be allowed in. 
His idea was to prevent these Jews infiltrating Switzerland. And once Austria was taken over by Germany, it had the same status as Germany. And that would mean any Austrian Jew should be entitled to go into Switzerland. But Ruckman came to put this to an end. Ruckman, who was the head of the Swiss border controls, routinely sent Jews trying to cross into Switzerland back to Germany throughout the war, even though he was well aware of the fact this meant they would be subjected to horrific torture and absolute death. Ruckman's contribution to the conference was, quote, the Swiss have no more use for the Jews than the Germans do. At Avion, no country agreed to open their doors other than the Dominican Republic. The dictator of the Dominican Republic was willing to do this humanitarian act for a huge amount of money and only for a limited time, and only agriculturists. And the dominant theory is that he wished to lighten the skin color of his people the import of light-skinned Europeans. There's yet one other theory which I heard when I had a launch for my book, Heroic Children on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. When I delivered the launch, there was a gentleman there who was from the Dominican Republic, and he told the following story, that the governor of the Dominican Republic, the dictator, had married a black woman, their child was a mulatto, and it was not feasible to send her to school in the Dominican Republic so she was sent to school in France. When things began to heat up for the Jews, this girl told her father, you have to help them. When I was being made fun of, there was only one person who came to my defense, and that was a Jewish girl who every day looked out for my interests. Now, we don't know the name of this little girl, but thanks to her, there's an offer of 10,000 Jews that could go to the Dominican Republic. In the end, it wasn't 10,000 who went, but whoever went, their lives were saved, and it's all thanks initially, if the story is accurate, to this little girl. So the Avian Conference adjourns, accomplishing nothing other than giving the German press the vindication they sought, and it was the greatest signal Hitler could have ever hoped for to prove that he could literally get away with murder and the world would not do a thing. Thus, the Avian Conference, conceived to help the Jewish refugees, was in fact their death knell. As some reporters noted, Avian backwards spells naive. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.